verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them, called to him, called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And stopping... Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. What a gift that we have your words to study. And words that are filled with power and life and hope and truth. Give us tender, open hearts as we turn our minds and our hearts now to study the things you have to teach us. We pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. So we have uh, been studying the Gospel of Matthew over the last uh, four years. Uh, we, from Christmas to Pentecost, which is sometime in May usually, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew. And I, uh, as we enter into a new season of studying Matthew, I just want to give a, a quick introduction to the book, and, uh, you know, most of you uh, probably know that Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It acts as kind of a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. One of the main things that Matthew is trying to communicate is that Jesus is the long-awaited ending to the story of the Old Testament. And actually, if you've ever decided, you know, I'm going to read through the New Testament, I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to start at the beginning, I'm just going to read through the New Testament. The first thing that you come to is, is in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, is there's this list of names, it's the genealogy, and it's, which is always kind of a discouraging start to the New Testament. But actually, for the first audience, the first people who read the Gospel of Matthew, when they read the list of names, all of those names would have just been shorthand for a whole story about how God had made the world and humanity had rebelled against God and so God had chosen this one nation 
to be his light to all the nations. Israel was his chosen nation in the Old Testament. So they'd read all these names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and about you know, David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah and all these kings. And they would have said, oh, this is, telling, this is a shorthand of the whole story of the Old Testament. And then what the Gospel of Matthew is about is uh, Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was looking for. He is the true Israelite. Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations that showed all the nations what God was like. Jesus fulfills Israel's purpose. And so, in the Old Testament, you know, you find Moses. If you know the story of Moses, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he had the tablets, you know, he gave the Ten Commandments, the law. And so Jesus then goes up on a mount in this Sermon on the Mount. He gives the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you, you've heard that it was said that Moses said to you, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and he's expanding on Moses' teaching, and he's actually saying, I'm the greater Moses. And then in, uh, in Matthew uh, 10, Jesus sends out his disciples all throughout the promised land and they're, uh, to cast out demons. You know, all of God's enemies, these evil spiritual powers are throughout the promised land. And God says to his disciples, I want you to go conquer the promised land. So his disciples go out and cast out demons, and it shows that Jesus is the better Joshua. Joshua, who led God's people to, to defeat his enemies in the Old Testament. And then in chapter 13, Jesus gives the parables of the kingdom, all these cryptic sayings of wisdom about his kingdom, and it shows that Jesus is the greater Solomon. And actually, we're just going to look in a few months at Jesus' apocalyptic teaching in, uh, in Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man and the destruction of the temple in, the, in 70 AD. And it turns out that Jesus is the greatest of the prophets, of all God's prophets. And what the whole book of Matthew is trying to say is that Jesus is the long-awaited ending to the story of the Old Testament. And so, when you, we come to this passage, you'll notice, in, the, in verse 17 it says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Now what this is talking about is that as Jesus has had this ministry that has largely been in Galilee, Galilee is about 65 miles north of Jerusalem, that's where he grew up, that's where the majority of his ministry was, it's where all of his followers were from, and now actually he's been just north of Galilee in Caesarea Philippi, he's going to go on a hundred mile walk from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, where eventually in Jerusalem he's going to be crucified, then he'll be raised the third day. And then 40 days later, he will ascend back into heaven. And so he, when we hear that Jesus has now set his face to go to Jerusalem, it's the ending of the story of the gospel. And he is soon going to pass off his ministry, his mission to the disciples. And he said, you know, I'm going to be in heaven. And now he's going to send them out. And so some of his most important teaching comes in these last days before his crucifixion as he approaches Jerusalem. And one of the most important uh, things that he's going to teach about in this passage is about the important um, topic of leadership. His disciples are going to be the leaders of his church, and the church is going to be his primary vessel for the bringing of his kingdom to the world. And so he has important teaching about his vision of leadership. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And in particular, we see two things that Jesus teaches us. Is that Christian leadership is, first of all, ambitious... But second, Christian leadership is servant-hearted. Christian leadership is ambitious and servant-hearted. Okay? So the first of these is that Christian leadership is ambitious. Now, if you've ever read this passage, you might think, 
That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's... Maybe he thought, this isn't what he's talking about, about being uh, ambitious. And, you know, this passage cracks me up because it's, in this passage you have James and John, their mom all of a sudden shows up in the story. Here's their mom, and she comes and talks to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, could my boys, could my boys be number one and number two in your kingdom, you know, right after you, left hand in your right? And, I, you know, I just picture James and John are just embarrassed, like, mom, don't go and talk to Jesus about... You know, come on, this is so embarrassing. And, you know, but it's not only funny uh, because, you know, she's kind of a classic obsessive mother, but it also, this request to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left for James and John comes right um, after Jesus has just made this prediction that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And you think, you know, were you listening? Well, he just said that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Now you, hey, can he be on your right hand and your left when that happens? You know, and you probably weren't listening. And the reason for that is because we don't want to hear about the path to glory, which is the cross. We just want to hear about glory, the glory that we'd have. And uh, the desire for glory is, unfortunately, a very strong temptation in our generation. Um, I, I put a quote for you on page three of your bulletin, if you want to turn there. This is from David Brooks, who is, uh, he's a New York Times columnist. He's, he's just written a book that I'm kind of working through called uh, The Road to Character. And this is one of the things that he talks about our generation's desire for glory. He says this, fame used to rank low as a life's ambition for most people. In 1976, in a 1976 survey that asked people to list their life goals, fame ranked 15th out of 16. By 2007, 51% of young people reported that being famous was one of their top personal goals. In one study, middle school girls were asked who they would most like to have dinner with. Jennifer Lopez came in first. Jesus Christ came in second, and Paris Hilton third. Tight race. The girls were then asked which of the following jobs they would like to have. Nearly twice as many said they'd rather be a celebrity's personal assistant, for example, Justin Bieber's, than president of Harvard. As I looked around the popular culture, I kept finding the same messages everywhere. You are special. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are so great. This is the gospel of self-trust. Now, this uh, kind of self-glorying ambition is without a doubt contrary, counter to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so then you might ask, then why do I say that a part of Christian leadership is, that Christian leadership is ambitious? Well, the reason I say that is because one of the things I love about this passage is how Jesus responds to James and John and to the mother, right? So they come and say, hey, we want to be sit at your right hand and your left. And so first of all, Jesus turns away from the mother and says, okay, James and John, you want to talk about this? I'm going to talk to you, not to the mom. And, uh, and what Jesus does, uh, does not say is, you fools. Why do you have such dreams? Why are you dreaming about such things, um, uh, sitting at my right hand and the left? Only that's so foolish of you to dream that. He doesn't say that. Instead, he turns to them and it says in verse 22, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? He doesn't say don't be ambitious. He just says be clear about how my kingdom works. Remember, I just told you that I'm going to be crucified. And, you know, of course, how do they answer him? He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink this cup? And they said to him, 
Yes, we are able. We can do it. If you can do it, Jesus, we can do it. You know, they're so naive. They're young. They're naive. They're ambitious. And yet Jesus does not shame them. Even though they're naive, he doesn't shame them. Jesus needs disciples who are willing to be ambitious. And of course, you look at the Apostle Paul, you read through the book of Acts, he's tremendously ambitious. He has this vision to plant churches all over the Mediterranean world. He plants in you know, uh, different continents, and he goes on these travels, and he has these plans, and he sets up churches, and he trains leaders, and he, he wants to go to Spain, to the, other, you know, to the far reaches of the world. And um, church history is filled with Christians who have done all kinds of daring things in service to the Lord. And that requires some ambition. And, uh, you know, actually, when I was in seminary, uh, there was a guy who came to the seminary to do a ministry lunch. They have these ministry lunches where people would present about their ministries. And he was a guy who worked with gang members in Chicago and in the, in the prisons. And he talked about how his strategy always, when he went into a neighborhood, was to go find the top gang member drug dealer and talked to him about Jesus because he thought, you know, if I could convert the top dog, then I'd get the rest of the gang. I mean, that's how the gang works. And so he told a story, actually, when he was in uh, prison, there was, uh, he came into the prison, and he says, hey, who's the scariest guy in the whole prison? And everyone said, you know, Bubba or whatever, you know, whatever the guy's name, I don't know his name was. And uh, he was this big, huge, former gang member who was in the prison for murder. And everyone was scared of him. And he, so he went up right up to him, and he says, hey, listen, Bubba, whatever your name is, I need to talk to you about Jesus. I want to tell you about Jesus and how you need to repent and, and believe in him. And, you know, the, this big, huge gang member says, you know, do you know who I am? He looks at him, he's like, how dare you just come up to me and do you know I'm in here for murder? I kill people. And, uh, and of course, and then this guy responds to him and he says, well, Jesus is looking for people who are willing to go all the way. The murder? Jesus looking I don't know how he thought to say that. Jesus looking for people who are willing to go all the way to the murderer. But it turns out, you know, the Holy Spirit must have been there because this guy actually becomes a Christian. And he becomes like his primary leader in the prison to make disciples. And of course, when the scariest guy becomes a Christian, you know, everyone's all of a sudden interested. And uh, Jesus is looking for this kind of ambition. People are willing to go all the way. And he does not rebuke them for their ambition. And Jesus knows that as we serve him, we must have vision and passion and conviction. We must have goals. He wants us to be faithful, but he also wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to produce things for him. And um, now there are a few things that have to temper our ambition. We should have ambition, but there are a few things that we should be saying along with that ambition. And the first is, that even though Jesus wants me to be ambitious, I need to remember that I will have to suffer in his kingdom. That is a part of his kingdom. You know, he says in verse 23, to the brothers, to the boys, you will drink my cup. Okay, you want that, you want that role in my kingdom? You're going to have to drink the cup. You're going to have to suffer. The other thing that we have to remember is that God's dreams are better than mine. The thing about self-glorying ambition is it's always about fulfilling my personal dreams and it's not God's purposes that he's trying to fulfill through me. And you see in verse 20, the second part of verse 23, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Christian ambition doesn't say, I want to fulfill all my dreams. It asks the question, what is God preparing for me? What is God calling me to? What are God's purposes for my life? And I'm willing to yield to those. 
And so that's an important part of Christian leadership is not only that Jesus doesn't shame us for our ambition, he actually knows that that's an important part of the Christian mission. But also there's this yielding, and this yielding looks like the second thing that we're going to look at about Christian leadership is that Christian leadership is servant-hearted. Christian leadership is servant-hearted. And in order to say that, Jesus says two things. First of all, he just says what we should not be like. He describes the leadership of the world. He says, this is what leadership of the world is. And then he says, this is what leadership in my kingdom looks like. And he contrasts them. So first, uh, what does leadership uh, in the world look like? And it says in verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. few things that we learn about the world's style of leadership from this verse is that, first of all, leadership in the world is about seeking your own glory. Um, and, you know, of course, we see that somewhat in James and John here. And the result of that, it says in verse 24, is that the other disciples were indignant at the two brothers. There was anger and suspicion and division. And this is what happens, of course, when there's a desire for self-glory, is I want to, I want to uh, be the most respected, I want to be the greatest. There's a sense of competition that is brought into any team, into any business, any workplace, into any ministry. And any time that sense of competition is brought into a team that's working together, people begin to be suspicious of one another, distrustful of one another. And then they're no longer working together. It, I mean, it has, it has huge effects on the, on the productivity of, of what you're doing together. And, and, and so Jesus says you cannot seek your own glory. Um, it deeply limits what a group can accomplish. But second, the second thing, that, uh, thing about leadership, the way the world generally approaches it, is that the world leads through Intimidation. Jesus says in the, uh, that the Gentiles lord it over them. So the, you know, those, are, those are that are outside of God's kingdom. The way that they lead is by lording their power over others. They use fear and guilt to motivate other people to do what they want. And uh, you know, some of you have been in workplaces like that, where the, just the atmosphere is, is fear, guilt, you're walking on eggshells, you got a boss, you never know when he's going to you know, lose his temper, he's overly critical, you feel no freedom to say your ideas, there's no freedom for risk, there's no freedom for failure, because everyone is just kept in line by a, a sense of intimidation. This is lording over the power and authority that, uh, that's been given to someone. And Jesus says, that can happen in the church. That can happen from Christians. That can happen in ministries. And so be on guard against this. It can't be this way among you. And, um, but a third thing about the, the uh, nature of leadership in the world is that in the world, leaders rely on their position instead of their character. You know what I mean by that? That um, you can lead and expect people to respect you, expect people to listen to you, expect people to do what you say, because of your position. I'm in a position of authority. I'm your boss. I'm your manager. Now be quiet and do what I say. Or people can follow and respect you because they know that you love them. They know that you care about them. Or they know that you're good at what you do. And so they respect your voice. That doesn't mean that there's no place for an authority and in, in submitting to authority, but that we should desire that the, the reason people follow us is because of the character that they've seen in us. 
And, you know, this is uh, something I, my dad always told me growing up that he said, you know, in, in any workplace, the true leader in the office is very often not the manager or the person who's in charge. You know, the person that everyone really respects, everyone really looks to, everyone, you know, that really binds everyone together and gives us, you know, sets the culture, people, the, the person that people listen to. It could, you know, could be actually the male boy. It could maybe not be the, the manager because people actually follow character instead of position. And Jesus says, this is how it should be in my kingdom. And so, uh, whether you are a parent or a teacher or a home group leader or an elder or a manager or a business owner, I de- our desire should be that people respect and follow us because they know we love them, not because we enforce the rights of our position. It's a strong temptation to use our position to get people to do what we want instead of leading them from our character. Okay? So what does that leave? So that's, that's kind of his critique of the, the leadership of the world. So in contrast to that, Jesus says great leadership in his kingdom is defined by servanthood, by being a servant. And you see that there in verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so what does it look like to be a leader, wherever you are, who is a servant? Well, let me just highlight three things positively from this passage. So first of all, to be a servant means that there are no tasks or people who are too small. For, you know, there's no tasks or people that are too small for me. There's no people that I, you know, kind of look down on and say, I don't have time for them. I don't need to know them. I'm above them. My position puts me in a place above them. I don't need to get to know them or to stop to talk to them. Um, It means finding anywhere we can to show people I am your servant, even doing small tasks. Don't saying like that task in my workplace or, or in the church or in my family, that task is below me or there's no people below me. And um, one of the things that I love about this passage, you see this in Jesus, of course, in verse 29, this next little story, where it says, And as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And, you know, here's, this, you know, here's Jesus. Who's, he's got huge crowds following him, him from Galilee uh, down to Jerusalem. And he's, at times, had thousands of people coming to him for healing, coming to him for teaching. He's, he's known as a prophet. And, and then you have these two blind men who are yelling at him. And you know, two blind men in the ancient world, they, first of all, they would have been outcasts because you know, in the ancient world, people often saw that if you, you know, if you were blind or you had some disability, it was because the gods had cursed you, the gods had turned against you. And so if someone was, you know, had a disability like that, you know, you're going to steer clear of them. I don't want the curse to come on me. And so they're outcasts. They're also you know, maybe kind of socially awkward. I mean, part of the things in this passage is all the crowd is like, hey, could you guys just be quiet? Stop yelling at Jesus, the important guy. And they just keep yelling. They don't care what anyone thinks. They don't keep their mouth closed. And so they're kind of socially awkward. And, and they're also, because of their disability, it's questionable what they have to offer his movement. 
He's starting this whole kingdom movement. And because of their disability, do they have power to be productive for him? There's so many things that they don't have to author him. And it says that Jesus turned to them and had pity. Everyone else said, ignore him. You're above them. And he looked at them and regarded them. There was no people. There was no task. It was too small. That's a mark of Christian leadership. It's constantly showing that we're servants, that we're not above uh, anyone or anything. Second thing um, about being a servant says that my goal is to bring blessing and honor to others and not to myself. Whatever context I'm leading, my desire is to bring blessing and honor to others and not to myself. And, you know, uh, several years ago, I read an interesting book called Good to Great. It's kind of a business book that uh, was written by Jim Collins. I think he's at Stanford Business School, which was uh, about a study that was done about these 11 Fortune 500 companies that met a certain criteria of being these great companies that had had this uh, really dramatic uh, turnaround at some point in their history and then for 15 years had long-term growth and productivity and real health as a, as a company. And so um, there were very few companies that met this criteria. And so this book, uh, this Jim Collins and his team did a study of these, these companies to say what were the marks of these companies that gave them this endurance. And the first thing that was a surprising finding was that all of these companies had CEOs who were decidedly marked by humility. This was surprising. They were, the CEOs were not larger-than-life, kind of loud, uh, you know, confident, big people, you, whatever. Um, this is what it says. Those who worked with or wrote about the good-to-great leaders continually were, used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe his own clippings. And uh, one of the board members of a large steel uh, company described his CEO this way, Ken is a very modest and humble man. I've never known a person as successful in doing what he's done that's as modest. And I have worked for a lot of CEOs of large companies. And that's true in his private life as well, the simplicity of him. I mean little things, like he always gets his dogs at the local pound. He has a simple house that he's lived in for ages. He only has a carport, and he complained to me one day about how he had to use his credit card to scrape the frost off his windows, and he broke the credit card. You know, Ken, there's a solution for it. Enclose your carport. And he said, ah, heck, it's, uh, it isn't that big of a deal. He's that humble and simple. And as a result of you know, this humility of, of all these leaders, they were continually giving credit for the success to all the other people in the company. They never took credit for it. And except when something was going wrong, they always took the blame for things that were going wrong. They were always building people up. And, and the book says these qualities are incredibly rare in the business world. They're incredibly rare. And what's, um, what's amazing is that Jesus' vision of leadership, this kind of meekness, humility, modesty, um, you know, putting others, esteeming others better than ourselves, is not just something that Jesus says he wants in his church, that he wants Christians to be kind of meek, but what it turns out that this is how the world has been made. This is how God's world has been made. And that when people lead like this, not just in the church, but actually lead that way in business settings, in office places, in homes, in schools, in neighborhoods, 
This is how the world prospers and thrives. Even in these Fortune 500 companies, these principles of the kingdom turn out to be more productive and more fruitful. And, uh, and so Jesus is saying this should be a mark of his people when they lead in the world. But one other aspect of being a servant is this. Is that when we are servant leader, we say that my calling is to give my life away. That's what leadership is about, is about giving my life away. And you see this here in verse 28. Jesus says, even as the Son of Man. Now that title, Son of Man, some of you will know that's a favorite title that Jesus would use for himself. You know, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. And you might think that that's kind of a modest, humble title. You know, that Jesus was God, who came down and he's saying now, oh, I'm only a Son of Man, I'm a mere Son of Man. But actually, Son of Man is a title that comes from Daniel chapter 7 which was a prophecy that said that there was going to be this being like the Son of Man who comes riding on the clouds into the Ancient of Days, into God's throne room, and God is going to give the Son of Man dominion over all the nations of the earth, and all peoples and tribes and tongues are going to come and give complete allegiance to him. And so when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, he's not actually saying something modest. He's saying something incredibly profound that he is the true king of the world. And so Jesus says in verse 28, even as the son of man, the true king of the world, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The true king to whom the allegiance of all the nations is due to, to whom every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord, is a servant and you know, this is so opposite of how our culture thinks. When we think about what leadership is about, we think what a great person is. What is a great person? A great person is someone who has found themselves and who is true to what's in their heart and they fulfill all their passions and their dreams. And Jesus says, actually, greatness is about dying. It's about losing your life for others. No matter how much money you have, no matter how many friends you have, no matter how many goals you've achieved, Unless you have sacrificed for others, there is no greatness in your life. What does it mean to you to be great? Jesus says, count all the money, all the friends, all the accolades, all the accomplishments. If, unless you have sacrificed for others, there is no greatness. That is the only greatness, Jesus says, that God regards. And I'll tell you, you know, when you serve in a context where there are leaders like that, whether it's in your workplace or you're in a home or you know, in a classroom or your neighborhood or a ministry, or, you know, and, and leaders are, are that way, it's such a joy to go to work. It's such a joy to be there. You can't wait to be there. And it's collaborative and everyone has a peace and you feel valued and you feel dignified and, and you, wanna, you trust the, the people that you work with. And the good news is that we as a church... We're in that kind of organization. Our leader is Jesus. The supreme one to whom all glory is due has become a servant. He comes to the two blind men. He comes to us. We're the outcasts. We're the weak. We're the socially awkward. We're whatever, you know, whatever things there are about us. And he comes and he has pity on us. And he loves us and he builds us up and he steams us and he gives us a place in his mission. And we get to be a part of it. And it's a tremendous joy that he came and did not say he wanted to be served by us, but he came and said, I will die for you. And so how do we become the leaders that Jesus envisions here? We let ourselves be awed by our leader who sacrificed all for us. 
we continually look at him. We fix our eyes on Jesus and say, look at what he's done. Look what he's done for us. We were the lowest and he served us. And it is an immense joy to be a part of a kingdom that is led the way that he leads ours. Let's pray together.